Kennedy Paradox, Chapter 9. Centerville, Vermont, Saturday, February 25th, 1961, 6.06 a.m. All night, he had searched his memory for the code name of Mankiewicz's project. Before dawn, his thoughts drifted back to San Francisco. Brightened highlights in Kate's auburn hair and her vivid green eyes faded with Vermont's burgeoning light. The basement oil burner hummed, and the warmer air pushed through the floor ducts. He fought to sustain Kate's image as he stood. He scratched a round circle in the frosted window pane. The day had arrived sunny and cold. He stripped down and back toward the shower. Fatigue soon faded with the hot water massaging his shoulders. Then he shampooed his hair into a sudsy mass. On this very morning, albeit hundreds of miles away, a younger Mankiewicz worked at Barton College. Patch envisioned himself on a definite mission now as he rinsed away the soap. He stepped from the shower and grabbed the wide terry cloth towel. Once dried, he wrapped the towel around his waist and gazed at the yellow corn stalks pushing through the snow. Steam and smoke already drifted from Jeffrey's maple shed. He stepped up to the ceramic sink and smiled when he saw the Gillette adjustable razor and a thin box of double-edged blue blades. Last night, the Gillette commercial said the razor would give a real man shave. He rubbed his fingers over his dark, rough beard. Nothing can shave as smooth, as clean, as close. Patch lathered his face with Gillette foaming. And to his surprise, the blade easily cut his whiskers. He carefully worked the razor, wiped the remaining lather off his skin, and rinsed his face. As he dragged the smaller towel over his face, the code name for Mankiewicz's New Jersey operation bubbled effortlessly into his head. He smiled at himself in the mirror. Zeta 7. He quickly donned baggy dungarees and the red flannel shirt Becky had left on the chair. Breakfast aromas crept inside the room when he opened the white panel door. He shuffled into the hall. Zeta 7 repeated in his head down the squeaky stairs. Becky turned as she stirred the metal pots on the stove. The steamy windows dripped with moisture. How did you sleep, Captain? Off and on, I'm anxious to get back to my contact. Understandable. Well, have a seat. We've got bacon and eggs, some home fries and toast, and black coffee. Thank you, said Patch. Blue gingham placemats and white china plates gave Becky's table a country look. As he sat down, he again thought about the table in Golden Gate Park. She poured coffee from a silver pot spout. The steam swirled upward as he sipped the warm brew. The deep coffee flavor soothed his mouth. I have to warn you, Captain, not to be put off by Bud Callahan. He's not used to passengers. I understand. I just appreciate the effort. I won't be much trouble. She turned from the stove and carried a large black frying pan to the table. With a chrome spatula, she slid off the yellow fluffy eggs onto his large plate. Bacon soon followed the eggs onto the plate. There, let me get your toast. Butter or jelly? Jelly is fine. You like living in rural Vermont, don't you? 3,000 people in Centerville and traveling to St. Johnsbury takes over an hour. I've lived here all my life and don't know if I could take city life. Patch nodded. This remote area intrigued him. And he even fantasized settling here, but not without Kate. For 15 minutes, Becky spoke about her neighbors, the church, and the town itself. 
He assured her that he would compensate her for her assistance, but she insisted that she did not expect repayment. Jeffries appeared in the doorway as Patch finished his toast. He held a brown metal coffee mug in his hand. Bud is out front, Captain. Sorry, but he's itching to go. I appreciate all you two have done for me, said Patch. He buttoned a wool overcoat Becky had given him. I guess it's time for me to complete my mission. Good luck, Captain. She hugged him briefly. I hope you get back to where you're supposed to be. Thanks for everything. A wide smile beamed across her round face. You'll get through just fine. Jeffries led him into the chilled winter air. A long silver truck and attached green cab idled on the road at the end of the dirt driveway and the exhaust filtered back through the yard. They walked several hundred feet to the road. Jeffries told Pat she had lost several good buddies when he fought in Korea, but he had learned back then to keep on going. At the truck, Jeffries climbed up near chrome side pipes and opened the cab door. He said something to Bud inside and then jumped back down. Jeffries adjusted his cap and extended his hand to Patch. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Captain. You're a patriotic American, Mr. Jeffries. I've been out of uniform for a while, but I can tell you it was good to come back to the cows and the silos. I bet. I've lived here all my life, other than the service. He pointed across the river to the gravestones under the bare trees on the riverbank hill. Five generations of Jeffreys up on that hill, Captain. And maybe more coming along. Did Becky tell you something? Pat shook his head. Jeffreys held his hand aside his mouth and lowered his voice. Becky's pregnant. Congratulations. We're going to have a big family. The overpowering truck horn sounded loud enough to rattle the chickens back at the house. Both Jeffreys and Patch turned and laughed when Bud blasted the truck horn a second time. Patch opened the door and Bud pointed at his watch. Jeffries handed Patch a yellow lined piece of paper with his phone number and mailing address. You come back here when you're done with your mission. Thank you, said Patch, tucking the paper in his coat pocket. He surrounded his callous hand around Patch's hand. Good luck, Captain. Patch pulled himself up the sideboard and slid onto the bench seat. Cigarette smoke accounted for most of the breathable air inside the cab. Jeffries quickly saluted and headed back toward the yard as Pat shut the cab door. Bud Callahan in his blue denim jacket stared ahead. Veins protruded from his bony hands as he gripped the oversized wheel. Grease comb marks laced his gray hair. Peppered beard stubble covered his face and a half-spent cigarette butt hung from his mouth. He popped open his bloodshot eyes as he spoke. New Jersey's a haul. You sure it's no trouble, Mr. Callahan? His voice blended into the pitch of the idling truck. Name's Bud. I usually don't transport inanimate objects. Guess I could transport a live one for a few hours. If it wasn't for my wife, you'd be hitching. You know what I mean? Yes, sir, I've got it. Bud maneuvered the stick shift as if his hands meshed with the truck gears. The truck started forward down the country road. Snow obscured the barn roof. More fields angled upward to another farm and a paved road. Bud said nothing as he revved the rig's powerful engine at the stop sign and then brought the long truck onto US Route 5 south. He pitched the cigarette out the window, but almost immediately lit another camel. Patch lowered the window a few inches. Bud winced and blew smoke toward the windshield as he headed south toward White River Junction. 
Drives Washington Bridge, Fort Lee, New Jersey, Saturday, February 25th, 1961, 1.46 p.m. Down the ice-chunked Hudson River, patch search for Manhattan skyscrapers. In 1986, the World Trade Center buildings were the tallest buildings in New York City. But in 1961, only the Empire State Building stood above the other structures. His stomach tightened, and slowly he closed his eyes as he pictured the future skyline and these older buildings melting into a radioactive rubble. Massive cars with rocket fins zoomed past the rig. Minkowitz had said retrograde would take weeks. Without a full power-up, a lingering uncertainty left him baffled. He stared at the bridge's upper cables as they crossed into New Jersey. His presentation at Barton College had to captivate Mankiewicz or everything would be lost. But it said no more than two sentences since they left Jeffrey's farm. In Massachusetts, he proclaimed he had a water the lilies and they stopped at a gas station. Somewhere in Connecticut, he began talking high finances, told Patch he needed to save some money. Patch just looked out the window. After hours on the road, Bud turned on the radio. The news came over the speakers. News reports from Washington indicate the Kennedy administration, just over a month old, will introduce a new era of government action. Proposed programs will include a focus on domestic initiatives that will involve an increased spending on the elderly, an increase in the minimum wage, and more educational funding. On the foreign scene, the ever-present Soviet threat Looms over the administration, including potential tinderboxes in Laos, the Congo, and Cuba, as well as the Berlin problem. An unnamed spokesman suggested the development of a Peace Corps, where volunteers would bring their expertise to the world's poorest section. A public statement is due out next month. In other news, the 36-month test of pay television has been audited by the FCC. The future of such an arrangement is unknown. The National Council of Churches stands by its release statement of last Thursday, drawing widespread criticism of the Council's sanctioning of artificial contraception techniques as a part of family development. And finally, on this Saturday morning, the 25th of February, 1961, former President Dwight Eisenhower's January farewell address is still drawing criticism from conservative groups. Eisenhower, while acknowledging the need for such power in the current world situation, spoke of a direct threat to the United States security from its own military-industrial complex. He said, quote, The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Eisenhower understands, said Patch. Bud looked as if he were eating a cigarette. He gripped the wheel with his other hand. Too much power in the wrong place is not good. The rig rolled forward. Patch then leaned and yawned loudly. In a little more than an hour, he would be arriving at the college. Tracking down the Mankiewicz of this time on a Saturday could be a problem. Even if he sold Mankiewicz on the time travel story from 1986, Mankiewicz possessed limited power and clout. With or without Mankiewicz, the 1986 conspirators specifically Carlos Sanchez, had to die before retrograde ripped Patch into the future. Interstate 95, Hedford, New Jersey, Saturday, February 25, 1961, 3.15 p.m. The green and white highway sign for Barton College popped up over a long highway hill 
about an hour later. Another sign, half a mile away, caused Bud to turn to a patch. That it? Yeah, that's the exit. The grumpy truck driver nodded, downshifted at the ramp, and the rig rumbled slowly off the highway. Snow blanketed the athletic fields and numerous brick buildings ahead. Bud turned onto the service road and applied the truck's powerful air brakes. The truck produced a loud whoosh and abruptly stopped. Then he just stared at Patch. Pat shook his head and flipped the door latch. He climbed out of the rig and onto the chrome sideboard. People out here are all wops and dagos. Hey, Bud. What? You're a Neanderthal. Bud tilted his head slightly. What country is that? Thanks. Don't mention it. Patch slammed the door as he leaped onto the cement sidewalk. Through the window, Bud lit another cigarette. The engine revved and with another whoosh, the long, salt-smeared truck chugged up the access road. Patch winced as the truck's engine noise faded and he started down the shoveled sidewalk. Another walkway, bricks visible through the snow, extended across the open area surrounded by older brick structures in a central building with a tall white cupola who trudged into the wind toward campus. Under a gray speckled sky, he focused on the weathered brick and ivy walled buildings. A few students and one guy with a gray beard, who must have been a professor, meandered down the walkway. While he could not locate the physics building, he stopped two men in jeans and red and black campus jackets. A blonde-haired kid in a red stocking cap directed him across the quadrangle to a three-storied stone building with steam vents rising from a green-tiled roof. Patch figured as he gazed across the snowy fields, Bud would spend the day smoking and chugging down the highway toward North Carolina. In his head, he rehearsed his pitch to Mankiewicz. He would not be too anxious or pushy, nor could he unload too much information. The building shadows covered his body. Steam wafted off the slate roof. He inhaled the cold air, then hurried up the slippery stone stairs. When he pulled open the heavy wood door, he had to steady his wet feet on the worn red and white squared linoleum floor. A glass marquee to his right listed Mankiewicz's office, room 324, in white letters. He ran up the slate stairs, sometimes skipping a few stairs at a time, before he emerged into a musty, well-heated corridor. The door numbers indicated Mankiewicz's office was not too far ahead and his heart pounded. He walked by several professors working with students are alone in the side offices. About halfway down the darkened hall, he approached a wood varnished door. The frosted glass had embossed gold shadowed letters. R. Mankiewicz, Physics. When he found the door locked, he kicked his foot into the air, but grazed the bottom of the door. As he checked down the hall, the door quickly opened. A thinner Mankiewicz, with no wrinkles and short dark hair, stood in a beige checkered shirt. His friend's familiar accent, as if revived from the dead, rang out clearly. Have you tried knocking? It's you, Ray. With a wide smile he could not shed, Patch stepped back and Mankiewicz studied him carefully, as if he were looking for something. Hey, I don't even know who the hell you are. You wouldn't know. What is this, 50 questions here? I'm a busy man. Who are you? A man who needs to speak with you. Yeah? Why? The now vital Mankiewicz looked as if he were on the verge of throwing Patch out of the building. You keep staring at me. 
You say you want to talk, but you won't say who you are. You have two choices. One, I call campus security. Two, you identify yourself. I need to talk to you about Zeta 7. Mankiewicz's dark brows flipped up as he gawked. Then he grabbed Patch's arm and dragged him inside, twisted the door lock shut. The office reeked of stale cigar smoke. He bounced around like a bee disturbed in the hive. Don't play games. You should have mentioned Zeta up front. The silver radiator under the window produced a long steam whisper. Now who the hell are you? Patch panned a number of books, stacks, and a small adjacent lab in a single window that overlooked the snowy campus. He spotted Mankiewicz's wife's photo in a gold frame on the desk. She had dark hair and pretty brown eyes. Hey, is that your wife? Don't get cute with me, hotshot. You're not going to believe what I have to say. I already don't like you. Now you listen up. You let me be the judge of your credibility. Mankiewicz walked over to the desk and removed a tiny reel-to-reel recorder from the drawer. He set it on the desk. Let's put your money where your mouth is. I'll speak into your recorder. Oh, how nice of you. Let's hear your claim to fame. I'm from your future. Mankiewicz visibly winced and pounded off the chrome recorder button. He stared at Patch for several seconds. Patch grinned, still astounded by Mankiewicz's youthful appearance. You look great, Ray. I knew you'd show up at my door. You're Captain Patch Kincaid. How do you know my name? He raised the butt of his hand to his forehead. Damn it, I thought she was crazy. Kate, Mankiewicz sat on the edge of the desk and shook his head. I didn't believe her. This has to be a phony setup. No, Ray, I am from your future. We worked together at Sector 13 in Colorado. Time Displacement Experiments, 1986. U.S. cities get blown up, that's what she said. And you think I was going to mount a horse and start ringing out that news throughout the countryside? Patch smiled again and tapped him on the shoulder. Gee, it's good to see you alive again, Ray. Do you realize what this could do to my credibility? Where is she? I didn't believe her, and I don't believe you. Where is she? Mankiewicz banged on the desk and then marched to the window. He crossed his arms and kept shaking his head as he gazed outside. I need proof. Listen, I had to leave quickly. I will tell you what I told her. He faced Patch, biting his lip like an angry child. She didn't know about the Zeta 7 part, but give me one bit of proof. A coin, film, record, anything. I have an open mind. We were forced out. I didn't get the briefcase with everything in it. I was only supposed to go back a couple of weeks, Ray. After they killed you, I ran into the chamber. Oh, so I died back there. Isn't that peachy? You're alive now. Well, I'm beginning to wonder. He kept talking as he retreated to his desk and sat in the oak chair. She said you ran out, but she never mentioned me being killed. And I still don't believe you. Where is she? Is she alive? Mankiewicz opened the middle drawer and waved a wood-grain handgun through the air. Okay, let's get down to business. Hey, you better start talking and tell me right away who you work for, Patch. Mankiewicz scampered around the desk and slowly placed the gun into Patch's ribs. Patch breathed erratically and his voice shook. Listen, I am from the future. I work for you up in Sector 13, the carved-out mountain. Sector 13. She described the area in Colorado. We couldn't find it. Nothing carved out of the mountain, like she said. That's years away, damn it. What's my wife's name, Patch? Lynn. My favorite food is fish and chips, right? 
No, Ray, you hate fish and chips. You're from Brooklyn and we're an avid Dodgers fan even after they moved west. Your wife has a degree in, uh, oh, what the hell is it? A botany specialty, I can't remember. You once patch. These are all common things. And your predecessor who contacted me a month, where is Kate? You're in no position to be asking anything. If you're working for the other side, I'm glad. I'm glad I've never seen such incompetence in such a stupid-ass story. Minkowitz yanked the gun away, but kept it pointed at him. He turned, lifted the phone, and dialed the number. You'll be debriefed until you wish you'd never come in here, buddy. Ray, I am from the future. Get me an outside line. Patch's heart thumped. Minkowitz listened to the line and then began dialing. I need a place a call to Mr. Robert Dietrich in Stebbins, Virginia. I don't know how I'm going to convince you. Mankiewicz pointed at him. You'd better convince me. I can tell you how history unfolded. Kate Landis did that, he said as he listened to the phone again. Yes, I have the number. He looked at Patch and then ducked down behind the oak desk. With just the top of his head showing, Mankiewicz said something in a low voice as Patch smiled and then he stood. What are you grinning at? Your security measures hiding under the desk. Minkowitz weighed the gun with his other hand. This is no joke. Then he adjusted the phone. Get me Bob Dietrich. This is Ray Minkowitz. Well, where the hell is he? Wait, your wife. You two were going together. You introduced her as your wife. Your mother-in-law sent this letter to you. An expression fell from Minkowitz's face. He let the phone slide slowly away from his ear and down his cheek as he squinted. What? You burned that letter and never told anyone. You just happened to mention it to me after you met Kate at Sector 13. He put the phone back on the hook, placed the gun in the drawer, and raised his index finger. While someone might have questioned my mother-in-law about this, no one knew. I burned the damn thing. Tell me, Captain. Will Kennedy get elected in 1964? Yes, he clobbers Senator Goldwater. That's what Kay told me before we put her... Well, we put her away, damn it. I thought she was crazy. Where is she? Minkowitz stared at him. You're here to change the future. Just how do you intend to do that, Captain? It's complicated. Minkowitz sat at the edge of his desk. He reached back and pulled a cigar box across the blotter. Cigar? Pat shook his head and Minkowitz lit up a tightly wrapped cigar. He took a few puffs until the ashes reddened. Then he exhaled. The floor is all yours, Captain. Can I call you Patch? Usually do. Why are you here? She basically had nothing relevant to say. Patch sat on the edge of the desk. He had the distinct feeling he could gain favor with this Minkowitz. That's your fault. Minkowitz scratched his head. My fault? You kept her out of the discussions when she and I arrived at Sector 13, Ray. The retrograde obviously hasn't taken her back. Retrograde is a theory, a classified theory. Unless, unless I came back in time. You watched her, didn't you? Thinking that if she did come back in time, she would be retrograded back. I know you were the one who pushed that theory into reality in the 70s. The 70s? That's a good one. Mankiewicz puffed and talked with a cigar lodged in his incisors. Then he nodded his head. Okay, you win. I do? Yeah, I believe you. For now. First of all, we're getting the hell out of here. I want an official debriefing. We'll go over to the Barton Library. 
and you're going to tell me everything you know. Leave nothing out. And if you're truthful, I'll cooperate. Do what you need me to do. He grabbed a yellow pad and two pens. Then I'll take you to her. But if you're lying, who knows what the hell they'll do.